Eco Report is a weekly public affairs program providing independent media coverage of environmental and ecological studies with a focus on local, state, and regional people, issues, and events in order to foster open discussion of human relationships with nature and the earth and to encourage you to take personal responsibility for living sustainably in the world. EcoReport is produced by an independent team of volunteers working at the studios of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana and financially supported by listeners like you. Good morning and welcome to Eco Report For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. The Bloomington Board of Park Commissioners approved a cull to remove up to 100 deer at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve this winter. Natural Resources Manager Steve Cotter told the board in its August 22nd meeting that deer are stripping the forest understory and destroying plant diversity in areas where they feed the most. The goal of this proposed sharpshooting effort is to remove enough deer from the nature preserve to reduce the browse pressure on understory plant species and seedling trees to the point where these species are able to recover and to once again grow at Griffey Lake. The city will pay deer management organization White Buffalo Incorporated up to $35,000 to conduct the cull between November 15th and February 28th. Cotter said the exact timing of the hunt will depend on the weather and the availability of food beyond the bait set for the deer. Cotter said safety is a priority. Hiking trails that cross into the Lake Griffey Nature Preserve will be closed during the cull. Sharpshooting would take place from elevated stands, so the trajectory of bullets would be down into the ground. Where possible, baited stations will be located away from human habitation and near earthen backstops. A private security firm would be hired by the city to patrol the area and to advise members of the public of the temporary closure of the property during the sharpshooting activities. This is not the first deer call the city has attempted at Griffey Lake. The first attempt to reduce the size of the deer herd at Griffey Lake Nature Preserve via sharpshooting occurred in 2014, and it was unsuccessful due to a large acorn crop that winter that interfered with the timing of the appearance of the deer at the bait stations. Some area residents say the Griffey Lake deer population is not large enough to warrant a cull. Board member Joe Hoffman questioned Cotter on this point. There's also been a, a, a point raised, you know, why not go out and count the deer first. I know this came up a couple of years ago, but I'd like to hear your, your take on that, that issue. It did, and we would love to know how many deer are out on the nature preserve, but it is not considered to be as important as the effects on the vegetation. The board unanimously approved contracting with sharpshooters from White Buffalo Incorporated to carry out the deer cull. Board Chair Les Coyne stressed the fact that commissioners have a responsibility to preserve and protect the area. We took on responsibility for Griffey Lake many years ago, and part of that responsibility was to preserve it. And uh, I brought up earlier the fact that we have a state-designated preserve there. That means preserve it. And I take that seriously. I take it as a fiduciary role for myself on behalf of the people of this community 
to do whatever we can to, to do our best to preserve Griffey Lake for generations to come in some semblance of the order that it was in when we got it. And it was a beautiful forest and a beautiful facility and a beautiful piece of land. And it's not quite that now. According to Cotter, the city will need a long-term deer management plan for Griffey Lake with or without a successful cull. We are currently looking into a new program by the, uh, conducted by the Indiana Department of Natural Resources that may help reduce the cost of deer management in future years. Uh, it is called the Community Hunting Access Program, and it's designed to increase hunting opportunities for white-tailed deer in urban environments and help alleviate human-deer conflicts. The program provides partners with financial and technical assistance to administer hunting programs in their communities. Neighboring Brown County State Park and Morgan Monroe State Park use controlled community hunts to manage their deer populations. A new lawsuit against Nestle Waters claims that, quote, not one drop of Poland spring water emanates from a water source that complies with the Food and Drug Administration definition of spring water, unquote. What's more, the lawsuit alleges the company has been selling billions of gallons of ordinary groundwater as spring water. The suit claims that the Poland Spring in Poland Spring, Maine, the supposed source of the water, dried up almost 50 years ago. Nestle's huge bottled water business includes a dozen brands of still and sparkling water. The company says Poland Spring water comes from eight springs, but the suit holds that there is no historical evidence for six of Nestle's supposed springs and that two are springs that no longer exist. Further, the lawsuit alleges the bulk of the water comes from wells in low-lying populated areas near potential sources of contamination. Interior Secretary Ryan Zinke has been conducting a review of 27 national monuments with the possibility of eliminating or shrinking them and allowing for mining or oil exploration. Zinke did not visit even half of the monuments and the review seemed to be very cursory. Thus, environmentalists feared the worst. The report is now out and Zinke says he will recommend to President Trump that none of the 27 national monuments under review be abolished. He will propose downsizing a handful of monuments including Bears Ears National Monument in southern Utah, which he announced earlier in the summer. The changes to that handfill will trigger a legal challenge and political fight in Congress. Conservationists who feared the sweeping nature of Trump's review would lead to substantial reductions in the size of large monuments in the West, say they will challenge those boundary readjustments in court. Meanwhile, Republicans in the House of Representatives who had urged Trump to take stronger action and revoke multiple monuments outright say they will now promote legislation to limit presidential powers in creating monuments. In a briefing after Zinke's recommendations were announced, Utah Representative Rob Bishop, chairman of the House Natural Resources Committee, said, quote, Congress never intended for one individual to be given the power to unilaterally dictate land management policies for large swaths of land, end quote. Bear Ears is double the size of the state of Rhode Island. Grand Staircase is three times the state of Rhode Island. President Trump signed an executive order just days before Hurricane Harvey that scrapped many of the flood protections introduced by Barack Obama. 
The president has abolished a number of flood standards in an attempt to get infrastructure projects approved more quickly. The federal flood risk management standard is among those to have been rolled back. In 2015, President Obama introduced measures that made it harder to build roads, bridges, and other infrastructure in areas that were susceptible to flooding. Plans for such projects would legally have to take into account the impact of climate change and to be built to withstand future changes. While the new regulations had yet to come into effect, they were scrapped entirely when President Trump decided they were likely to slow down plans for new infrastructure. Announcing his decision earlier in August, the president said, quote, we're going to get infrastructure built quickly, inexpensive to, inexpensively, relatively speaking, and the permitting process will go very, very quickly. It's going to be a very streamlined process, and by the way, if it doesn't meet environmental safeguards, we're not going to improve it. The move was praised by business groups, but strongly opposed by environmentalists. Rachel Cletus of the Union of Concerned Scientists warned that such a move would put vital infrastructure that communities depend on at greater risk of flooding. Cletus said it will lead to more costly and damaging consequences of these floods. Last week, the Washington Post reported the Trump administration had also decided to disband the Federal Advisory Panel for the National Climate Assessment. The group is aimed at helping policymakers and private sector officials incorporate the government's climate analysis into long-term planning. The charter for the 15-person advisory committee, which includes academics as well as local officials and corporate representatives, expires by the end of August. The National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration's acting administrator, Ben Friedman, informed the committee's chair that the agency would not renew the panel. The National Climate Assessment is supposed to be issued every four years, but has come out only three times since passage of the 1990 law calling for such analysis. The next one, due for release in 2018, already has become a contentious issue for the Trump administration. Administration officials are currently reviewing a scientific report that is key to the final document. Known as the Climate Science Special Report, it was produced by scientists from 13 different federal agencies and estimates that human activities were responsible for an increase in global temperatures of 1.1 to 1.3 degrees Fahrenheit from 1951 to 2010. One of the key scientific sections of the draft report was published by the New York Times this month after researchers involved in its creation became concerned Trump was planning on either cooking the books or suppressing it entirely. For WFHB, I'm Glenn Leitner. And I'm Linda Leitner. We love to hear from our listeners. Contact us about stories we've aired, or if you have ideas for future stories, please send emails to earth at wfhb.org. For today's Eco Report feature story, Norm Holy interviews Jesse Carbonda, Executive Director of the Hoosier Environmental Council. We join them following introductions as Carbonda speaks to the growing roles that solar and wind energy play in Indiana's energy portfolio. America has been the historically largest emitter of greenhouse gas emissions in the world, and the Midwest has been the leading emitter 
of greenhouse gas emissions in the United States. And Indiana has been the leading emitter within the Midwest. So Indiana plays a very important and outsized role in the effort to try to tackle climate change. So we're number one in terms of greenhouse gas emissions per capita in the Midwest. And that's driven by the fact that we have been historically so dependent on coal. Uh, we have a very large industrial sector and a very large agricultural sector. Industrially, uh, we are the most dependent uh, on industry in, in America. And agriculture-wise, we are ranked in the top five um, in terms of uh, these industrial livestock operations. And so the Hoosier Environmental Council's outlook is focused on the top three sources of greenhouse gas emissions in the state, energy, agriculture, and transportation. TC's been around for nearly 35 years, and our approach is very much focused on trying to use public policy as a means to accelerate. Uh, we've already seen a significant amount of change in terms of the composition of where we, we get our electricity from over in the last decade. As power plants began to reach their end life, as federal public policies uh, made companies internalize the costs that they impose on society in terms of air pollution impacts and water pollution impacts, that led to a change in the economics of different fuel resources. We have seen a significant change from coal to natural gas, which has had an impact on reducing Indiana's carbon footprint. And furthermore, we've seen a change in the prices of renewable energy, uh, a pretty precipitous decline in terms of utility-scale wind as well as utility-scale solar, and nearly comparable declines in terms of rooftop solar. And so that has changed the composition of our electricity sector in such a way that um, we have about half the number of coal plants that we had a decade ago, and renewable energy is around 5% of Indiana's electricity mix. What's the impact of that anti-solar bill uh, that was passed in the last legislature? Is that going to be a serious impediment to uh, homeowners putting rooftop panels on? Uh, it certainly will be, and not just to homeowners, but really to a whole array of Hoosiers, uh, small businesses, churches and other congregations and educational institutions, to name a few, because the bill is pretty wide in scope. And the it will be particularly damaging for those people who want to get into installing rooftop solar on, on their property, uh, so-called customer-owned solar energy. And it will be devastating to it because after five years, there's going to be a drastic change in how the electricity grid values the electricity that a solar customer provides the grid. So right now, any time you put excess power to the grid and you are a customer of one of the investor-owned utilities, Duke Energy or Indianapolis Power & Light or Vectron, any excess power that you put on the grid, you are credited on your electricity bill at the retail rate. And so your, your meter basically dials backwards to the extent that you're putting excess power on the grid. That not only helps the economics of your project, but it also is providing a fair credit 
for all the different services that you're providing to the electricity grid. Now, with SB 309, the bill that you're referring to, that idea of net metering will go away for anyone that installs their systems five years from now. Yes, actually, um, the church I attend, we were very keen on putting uh, rooftop panels on, on the church, but given SB 309, uh, we've decided that it doesn't make any financial sense at all, so we've basically scrapped the plan. So they've been very successful in, in killing... Well, I hope, I hope that uh, I, I, it's definitely been a discouragement for a lot of people who are interested in solar, but if you install before... January 1st of 2018, you will have net metering for the next 30 years. And if you install between January 1st, 2018 and July 1st, 2022, then you will have net metering for 10 years. And then again, if you install after July 1st, 2022, then you will have no net metering. So we do hope that people take advantage of the fact that there is a short window of time between now and January 1st, 2018, where you can have fairly similar public policy as, as, as existed prior to the passage of SB 309. That's good to know. Um, what's happening on, on the uh, wind turbine front? Well, is, um, is there new the, the number of wind farms in Indiana continues to increase. Uh, the, most of them, as you know, or as, as your audience knows, are off of I-65 north of Lafayette in Benton County, uh, which is to the west of, of I-69, uh, sorry, I-65 if you're going north, and White County, which is east of I-65, as, again, you're going north from, from uh, Indianapolis or from Lafayette. And, but there are other wind farms that are emerging. There's one on 37 uh, heading south, uh, towards Indianapolis from Fort Wayne, and there are several wind farm projects that are being proposed in other parts of the state, and there's also another big wind farm in Randolph County in east-central Indiana. And ultimately, what, what is the capacity of wind? Could wind turbines satisfy all the power needs, let's say, in the northern part of the state? Uh, yes, they could, and I think the question is, is really about... Um, Making sure that they're sited in in the in the proper place. You know, we as an environmental organization, we we care about wind energy because it is carbon free in terms of its air emissions, and it it doesn't discharge any water pollution like coal plants do. But we also know that, like any energy technology, it should be subject to good sustainability standards, uh, which means that you want to make sure that a wind farm isn't located in a path that could harm birds in any meaningful way. And what that means is that even if the technical capacity of wind is, is quite significant, uh, uh, more than 40,000 megawatts in terms of technical potential in Indiana, which, which is more than enough to satisfy uh, the power in the entire state. Uh, but the question is that you want to make sure that it's sited in the right place and that it takes into consideration the, 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 the views and opinions of, of the community uh, so that the community feels that it nicely integrates with their vision for their community. Most certainly, utility-scale wind can occupy a meaningful uh, percentage of Indiana's electricity. You, know, you look at 
Iowa, where about 30% of their electricity comes from wind power, and then places like Minnesota, uh, where they have a requirement that they get 25% of their electricity from uh, renewable energy, and wind is certainly making up the, the lion's share of that. That was Jesse Carbonda, Executive Director of the Hoosier Environmental Council, speaking with WFHB reporter Norm Holy. Are you an environmental activist, an expert on a particular issue of environmental concern, a concerned citizen interested in learning more about local and national environmental issues? EcoReport is seeking volunteer reporters to contribute short headlines, news stories, as well as future interviews. We provide all the technical training you'll need. For more information, email us at earth at wfhb.org or call 812-323-1200. This is In Nature. Skunks are mammals who very recently received their own familial classification, Mephitis mephitis, which translates to stinky stinky. However, there's much more to skunks than meets the nose, and they can't be defined in black and white. In fact, skunks naturally come in a variety of shades and patterns. Skunks are generally amiable but solitary. Most ground predators have evolved to recognize their distinctive black and white markings and have learned to keep their distance. However, aerial predators like the great horned owl don't seem to mind being sprayed. But there is one animal that hasn't learned to respect the skunk's warning signs, and that's the domesticated dog. Some believe the problem is that the signals that skunks give to warn another animal to stay away, like stomping and dragging their feet, resemble a dog's play bow. But while dogs find the skunk's behavior inviting, the skunks themselves see these domesticated animals as a threat. If you find a skunk traveling through your yard, take time to observe and enjoy. Skunks spray only when they feel directly threatened. A skunk who takes up residence under a porch is probably raising a family and will take off once the kits are old enough. Many people don't realize that skunks offer a great benefit to gardens and are known as a friend to farmers. This is because they prey on the insects and the larvae that can destroy crops. You've been listening to In Nature. And now it's time for our weekly events calendar. 16 species of turtles can be found in the wild in Indiana. Learn about these turtles at Turtles 101 on Sunday, September 3rd, from 3 to 3.35 p.m. at McCormick's Creek State Park. Meet some of them and learn facts about them at the Nature Center. Join a naturalist for a Canyon Curiosities hike to the falls and down the creek at McCormick's Creek State Park on Monday, September 4th, from 10 to 11 a.m. Geological and wildlife discoveries will be all around you. Wear appropriate shoes, you will get wet. Meet at the Canyon Inn. Work on your flora identification skills and practice with a naturalist at Flora Field Day on Tuesday, September 5th from 9.30 to 11.30 a.m. at Monroe Lake. Field Day emphasis is on proper use and application of an ID key, which opens the door to identifying thousands of species. Bring a copy of Newcomb's Wildflower Guide, if you have one, bug spray, hat, sunglasses, and a water bottle. Please sign up by September 3rd using their online form. 
For more information, call 812-837-9967. There will be a fall shorebird walk at Goose Pond Fish and Wildlife Area on Wednesday, September 6th from 8 a.m. to noon. Grab your binoculars and join Indiana DNR's non-game bird biologists on a hike to view migratory sh shorebirds at Goose Pond. Meet at the Goose Pond Visitor Center located at 1815 State Route 59 South in Linton, Indiana. Pre-registration is required. Contact Amy Kearns at 812-659-9901 or email akearns at dnr.in.gov. Join the Indiana Audubon Society for the Eagle Creek Fall Warblers trip on Saturday, September 9th from 8 a.m. to 11 a.m. at the Eagle Creek Ornithology Center located at 6515 DeLong Road in Indianapolis. Trip leader Nick Keel will take participants on an easy to moderate walk watching for warblers, thrushes, and vireos as they migrate. You must pre-register, email, nkeel96 at gmail.com. That wraps up our show for this week. Eco Report is brought to you in part by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. Found locally at 812-334-4003 and on the web at mpisolarenergy.com. This week's news stories were written by Norm Holy, Linda Green, and Sarah Vaughn. Rebecca Mueller edited the script Juliana Daly compiled our events calendar. Our engineer is Sarah Vaughn. Executive producer is Wes Martin. For WFHB, I'm Linda Leitner. And I'm Glenn Leitner. Join us on Thursdays at 11.30 a.m. before Democracy Now! and on Fridays at 5 p.m. before Kite Line for our weekly radio rundown of ecological news. Until then, Eco Report encourages you to take direct action to defend the Earth. You've been listening to the Eco Report, a volunteer powered production of Community Radio WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana. Available for download and podcast at news.wfhb.org. Eco Report is your independent, ecologically inspired news source for South Central Indiana, bringing you news that the earth wants you to hear. Send your comments, suggestions, and story ideas directly to the Eco Report staff. The email address is earth at wfhb.org. That's earth at wfhb.org.